and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, in the book of Philippians, Philippians 1.1. We've been here for a couple of lessons now. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who were in Philippi, including overseers and deacons. And we're dealing with the overseer issues, moving on to the deacons issues this morning. And then, of course, my favorite, grace and peace. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The standard benediction from the Apostle Paul that contains so much doctrine and so much encouragement that uh, every time we come to it, it's worth going through all over again. You can never teach grace too many times when it comes down to it. Before we get started this morning, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking the Father to set aside uh, any distractions and all the other issues, asking for His faithfulness to shine forth. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we thank You for this morning and we thank You for Your truth. We thank You for Your faithfulness day by day and moment by moment. We thank You, Father, for the living and abiding Word of God that sustains us, that anchors us, that provides the stability whereby we can be rooted and grounded, we can be stable, not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine and not tossed by the uh, circumstance. Father, bless the ministry of Your Word as it goes forth once again this morning. You have magnified it above Your name. And so, Father, we bow before it in reverence. We humble ourselves to receive the word implanted. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. So as we've been dealing with it here, I'll just have to zip on through. Uh, I believe we left off in main point three. And it used to be, I could just skip right to that slide, but... I think they took that functionality away, so we'll do it this way. All right. A local church is a subset of the universal church. We get that. The church universal is every born-again believer on the planet or those born-again believers that have departed the planet, those born-again believers that are face-to-face with Jesus Christ. Remember, absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. And so the bulk of the church today is not even on planet Earth anymore. We have 20 centuries of, of the bride of Christ that's already with the Lord. Uh, it's only the present, presently living generation of born-again believers that, that uh, is on the planet today that we call the church universal. Well, the local church is a subset of that, all right? And uh, it is a subset that is fixed at a particular locality. So they're both called ecclesia, and, uh, and the New Testament will, will use the word church uh, interchangeably back and forth. And so it's a good idea to you know, keep in mind or tag it or do something every time you come across the word church to make sure that you're, you're clear on it, whether it's a local church or it's, a, it's the church universal, all right? And it's not difficult. Usually context makes it very self-evident. There's only maybe a place or two that have any kind of real debate uh, really centered on it. Uh, and, and usually something that's very simple to, to pinpoint it is like we have right here, the saints who are in Philippi. Okay? And so that pinpoints it. That tells you you're talking about a lampstand. You're talking about an individual local church. Not to say there's anything wrong with the saints that are in Corinth or in Ephesus or somewhere else, but it's the saints in Philippi that are the ones that are being addressed here. And so we identify that as a local church. It is fixed to a particular locality. It is administered through the offices of overseer and deacon. These are the two offices that are given for every local church. 
and we have it here in Philippians 1.1. We also have it in 1 Timothy chapter 3. A whole paragraph for the overseer and a following paragraph there for the deacon. We had some uh, comments here about our sainthood in uh, uh, subpoint A, the fact that every believer is a saint, that you don't need a, uh, a vote. Uh, you know, we don't, the Roman Catholic Church has a process for uh, beatifying uh, different people and uh, making them saints or calling them saints. And it's, of course, quite a bit different from the New Testament because the New Testament calls everybody a saint. If you are saved, then you are set apart for God's holy purpose. And that's what it's about. That's our positional sanctification in Christ. We have ongoing experiential sanctification in the outworking of our Christian walk as we walk in that holiness, as we walk in His sanctification. And then finally, there's going to be an ultimate sanctification, as I said, in the ultimate sanctification of being face-to-face, of being absent from the body and at home with the Lord. And so uh, all of these studies, hagios as as a noun or an adjective, hagiazo as a verb, all these studies that hopefully uh, pinpoint for us what it means to be sanctified, what it means to be holy, where we can flush all the, the, the bad definitions that have crept into our mindset, <laughs> all right? And it's not about uh, being intimate with the Lord. It's not about being devout in your faith. It's not about, you know, being a, uh, even being a strong Christian per se, okay? I think sanctification produces all those results. The believer that walks in that experiential sanctification consistently over the over the the years year in year out of course those sanctified believers are going to develop more of an intimacy with the lord more of a developed prayer life more of a of a, of, of those things that a, a fervency or a devoutness uh, but I, I think uh, they get confused. The, the cart gets put before the horse more often than not, and people just use the term holy as a synonym for uh, devout. All right, and that's uh, that's a problem because we're all to be sanctified day by day. We're to sanctify Christ as Lord of our hearts day by day. And, and if we don't know the the real application of sanctification, then we substitute something emotional, and and we get all off track. And it's it's unfortunate when uh, when that happens. So I encourage you to do the uh, word studies on hagios. There's only 233 of them, so that won't take you. <laughs> okay, it's going to take you a while. Um, but most of them, though, are the adjectives connected to pneuma, you know, the, the, the term for the Holy Spirit. And so uh, that's the bulk of those 233 uses, and that's pretty self-explanatory. There's the Holy Spirit. So then you can highlight on those other ones and, and I think uh, have a shorter time of it. The verb hagiads only has 28 uses, so that one there uh, will get uh, uh, a much simpler approach. That's the verb to sanctify or to make holy. Um, overseers and deacons are the offices every church is vested with, and so we've talked about this. Some introductory points before we break down each one of them. An office is not a spiritual gift. We want to be clear on that. Sometimes Now, sometimes it doesn't matter. There are passages where you can use them interchangeably, interrelatedly, and it, it doesn't really affect the sense of, of what you're looking at. But there are other passages that it does matter. There are other passages where it's very clear and we have to delineate uh, as such. Why is it that 1 Timothy chapter 3 never once uses the word elder? Why is it that chapter 5 uses the word elder several times but never once uses the term overseer? That's not accidental. Paul is making a very clear points in chapter 3 and very clear points in chapter 5, and he wants us to understand both of them separately before we start to conflate them uh, either properly or improperly. And, uh, and we need to. We need to conflate them 
properly <laughs> in the way that the Scripture does. So that we understand that they're interrelated but not purely interchangeable. All right? And that becomes significant. So I find it useful to think in terms of offices versus gifts. And I like to think of offices, gifts, and maturity statuses. And, and so I kind of created a little trinity of expressions in my own thinking that helped me quite a bit. Um, and then I've learned that it, it's, it's not helped other people, okay? Which is fine. You know, you don't have to think the way I think. I hope you don't think the way I think. It's very confusing. But, and here's why. Gifts and offices and maturity statuses. It's a great trinity and it's blessed me but it's not the same thing as the Trinity we have in 1 Corinthians 12, 4, 5, and 6, where we have gifts, ministries, and effects, okay? And that's the one that I think everyone loves and clings to and points to because it's easy to spot, and there it is in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 4, verse 5, verse 6. There are a variety of gifts, but one Lord, variety of ministries, and I'm sorry, variety of gifts in one spirit, see, catch me now, variety of ministries in the same Lord, variety of effects, but one God, right, who works all things in all persons. So that trinity is, is also a very useful trinity. And, uh, and so I recommend you embrace both of them and, and use them in your thinking um, as long as, they don't, as, long as th- those two trinities don't confuse each other because they're not the same. They're not the same, all right? So an office is not a spiritual gift. The illustration, uh, pastor-teacher, is a spiritual gift, as per Ephesians 4, but the office is overseer. 1 Timothy 3.1, if a man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work that he desires to do. See, in office, you can aspire to it. And you're told that it's a positive thing to aspire to it. And if you're not yet ready for that office, then you should be working to get ready. See, And it's, it's a good work. If God is calling you to that office, then you prepare for that office and you keep yourself qualified for that office so that when he vests you in that office, you're ready to go. You can also be disqualified from that office, okay? Which is another reason why it's not a spiritual gift, (laughs) okay? Uh, First of all, you can't even aspire to the gift. How do you aspire to a gift? How do you sit around wishing that you had a gift that, I mean, you have the gift you have from the moment of your salvation? See, So, an office is not a spiritual gift. Likewise, an office is not a maturity status. It's not a maturity status. See, the term elder speaks to a maturity status. It speaks to someone that's not a babe, someone that's not a young man. Uh, When you have the, the different expressions of growth, you have babes or little children, you have children, you have fathers, right? There's a sequence there. First John has a sequence. Other passages have a sequence as it relates to our maturity status. There's other expressions as well, like a neophyte. A neophyte's not eligible to be an overseer. They're too young in the faith. They have to be, they have to be grounded. They have to, to have a, a measure of growth before they can be entrusted with that office of overseer. So an office is not a maturity status. Elder is a maturity status. And by the way, there are elders, both male and female, right? Older men, older women. Older men encourage the younger men. Older women encourage the younger women. And so this is where we have to be careful because they're not purely synonyms. Just because you have an older man in the faith does not immediately make him an an overseer of the flock. And just because you have an older woman in the faith... Well, you can't make her an overseer in the flock because the overseer is always masculine singular. Okay? 
And uh, there is a feminine singular noun, uh, but it's not for a person, it's for the office. The feminine singular noun is used for the office. It's not used for female elders or female overseers. There is no such thing. All right, so an office is not a gift. An office is not a maturity status. Elder is a maturity status, but the office is overseer. Okay, and if we're clear on that, then I think we're good. Now, gifts, maturity statuses, and offices are frequently blurred because usually you're just talking about the same guy. Okay, he's the, he's he's your pastor, he's an elder, he's the overseer. Okay, and uh, if you have a plurality of elders, then one of those is going to be the the angelos, the angel, the right hand messenger, as Jesus Christ walks in the midst of the lampstands and he holds the seven stars in his right hand. Right, one per lampstand. So there can be a plurality of, of elders at Ephesus, but there's one and only one that gets rebuked when Jesus Christ says, you've left your first love. Okay, Each of those messages to those angelos, messengers of the churches. And so uh, even though they are frequently blurred, I believe uh, in many passages we must uh, bring them into clear focus for the appropriate applications so that we uh, don't get confused when we read about, uh, say, the elders who rule well. And then we can stop and say, well, wait a minute. Guess what? There's elders who don't rule. So we're okay with that. To be worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Not every elder preaches. Not every elder teaches. Not every elder rules. All right? Not every elder is is in the office or is entrusted with that office. See? You might have elders that are still serving as deacons. That's fine. You know, don't you want to have mature deacons? Or do you just, you want babes for deacons, <laughs> okay? And as soon as they grow up a little bit, you yank them off the deacon board and say, well, you're an elder now, so, you know. No, I want, I want to have mature deacons, of course. I want to have mature everybody. <laughs> mature Sunday school, mature nursery workers, mature piano players, mature everybody, okay? All right. So we want to keep those things distinct. Now, if you do go back to the trinity of 1 Corinthians 12 of gifts, ministries, and effects, well then it's the middle one. It's ministries. Is that what we're talking about with these offices? An office, I think, is very clearly a ministry. It is a field of service in which a gifted believer will operate. All right. And so if you are a deacon, then you are in the deacon ministry. Yeah, if you are an overseer, you are in the overseer ministry of a local church. And so the offices of overseer and deacon, they are specific ministry fields for a variety of gifted believers to achieve a variety of the Father's effects. And again, there are a variety of gifts, a variety of ministries, and varieties of effects in uh, that trinity of passages there. All right. So if we're clear on that, then we can uh, proceed from there. We did talk about overseer on, in, on Wednesday, and I don't want to reteach everything that we taught there, but uh, the, the, the main takeaway is that the episcope is the office. And uh, this is where at least having a little bit of Greek is helpful, uh, just to spot the feminine ending and the masculine ending, right? You don't want to, you don't want to, we're not transgender here. We have, we have masculine and feminine genders in, in what we're doing. There's a neuter gender too, come to think of it. But, um, but the point being, 
right? You have to match your terms. If you've got a masculine noun, you've got to have a masculine adjective to go with it and so forth. You can't mix and match that. You can't do it in Spanish and German and Greek and Hebrew and anything. Or you just come across ignorant, okay? You're misusing the grammar when you do that. So um, uh, the episcope, E-P-I-S-K-O-P-E, with the eta ending, that's a feminine noun, all right? The episcopos, with the O-S ending, that's a masculine noun. And, in, you know, uh, some people might be tempted to say, well, it's just the same noun swapping genders. And so uh, and, and you can do that with many nouns, right? You can, like a Delphos and a Delphi, you've got brother and sister. That's, that's very normal. But episcopos doesn't let you do that. Because episcopos limits it to the masculine gender, and when it does use the feminine gender, it's not talking about a person, it's talking about an office. There are no female episcopoi, because the episcope is an office, not a person. That's the, that's the big takeaway from Wednesday night, to boil it you know, 60 minutes down into, into 30 seconds. There are no female overseers. Because the feminine singular episcope is an office. It's not a person. So the office of overseer is the episcope of the episcopos. And uh, the, the term episcope occurs four times in the New Testament, including, by the way, in Acts chapter 1, they had to select a replacement apostle. Uh, someone had to take Judas's office. Okay? Judas had the office uh, during the, uh, the first advent ministry of Jesus Christ. And there's a psalm that's quoted there when it says, let his days be few and let another take his office, right? And that gets uh, uh, referenced in the uh, procedure here in Acts chapter 1 when Peter says, hey, we're down to 11, we need, we need 12. That uh, they have to have 12 apostles of the Lamb before the day of Pentecost. There must be 12 apostles of the Lamb before the church age begins, okay? Because when the Holy Spirit descends at Pentecost and the church is begun... They've got to have 12, 12 apostles of the Lamb. Now, once the church begins, then they're, they're fine after that. So uh, in the church age, uh, the next apostle to die is, is James, and uh, they drop down to 11 again, and that's fine. They don't have to appoint another one to replace James. I mean, we're not constantly maintaining a, a college of 12 apostles on the planet you know, 2,000 years later. Um, uh, the, the need for the 12 apostles of the Lamb was only until the, the church began. Right? Because those are the men in the resurrection that will serve in, in the millennial kingdom to judge the twelve tribes of Israel. The foundation stones of the heavenly Jerusalem are named after the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Anyway, that's a whole different realm of doctrine, but the point is the word office is used there in first uh, in, in Acts chapter one, uh, as let another take his office. They, and so they appointed Matthias. Matthias was selected to uh, the two they put forward. They selected Matthias to replace Judas. And so he took that office. He took that episcopate. All right? And then, of course, uh, 1 Timothy 3.1. The episcopos, which we have in Acts 20, 28, uh, Philippians 1.1, 1, 1, 1 Timothy 3.2, Titus 1.7. Those are so useful. And then we'll look at those again briefly, and then we'll move on to, to deacons here this morning. But notice, let's, let's turn to 1 Timothy. Let's grab this one. 1 Timothy chapter 3. This way, if you missed it on Wednesday, you have a chance to catch it here. Or if you were sleeping and were not paying attention, you have a chance to catch it here. If you were listening Wednesday, and this is review, 
review is great, reinforces it. All right. An overseer, so it is a trustworthy statement, if any man aspires to the office of overseer, if any man aspires to the episcopate, it is a fine work he desires to do. An episcopos then must be above reproach. Okay, that speaks to character. That speaks to reputation. The husband of one wife, literally a one-woman man, is not a womanizer. Skirt chaser. Um, temperate. All right. Prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. That one there, I believe, is, is the key. It disproves somebody who's attempting to make a case that you have to have a certain spiritual gift. They say, if you're not a pastor teacher by gift, then you're not qualified to be an overseer. That's what they'll tell you. And they make it a pure synonym. They say every, pa- every overseer is a pastor, is an elder, and they just don't even give it a thought beyond that. They say, that's the way it is. Quit worrying about it. Well, that's not the way it is. Okay? And I'm not worried, but that's not the way it is. Able to teach. Well, if, if, if the man has a pastor-teacher gift, then he's able to teach. He has the Holy Spirit's empowerment through the use of that gift. It becomes nonsensical, really. It becomes a, a tautology, if you will. But if any gifted believer can grow to the maturity status of elder and can, after being tested, can operate in the office of overseer in any spiritual gift, maybe he's an evangelist, maybe he's, he's uh, an administrator, maybe he's a leader, maybe he's a giver, maybe he's a uh, whatever, maybe he's a teacher, just not a pastor teacher. What if he has the gift of helps? Okay, and he's been a deacon for twenty years. Now he's he's uh, being vested in the office of overseer. Well, is he able to teach? Is he able to teach? That's a requirement. Not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle. Well, pugnacious, by the way, I got a question on that. Wednesday. That's, that means you're not a, a fighter. Okay, it means you don't solve problems with your fist. Okay, because you know smacking somebody upside the head might be an option, but not, it's not an option for you. It's not your solution in the ministry, okay? <laughs> All right. There's no spiritual gift stipulated. Read through this. Do you find a spiritual gift in there anywhere? There is none listed. Likewise, the maturity status of elder is not mandated. Search high and low. Elder is not found anywhere in this chapter. Go to chapter 5, elder is used a lot of times, but you don't have overseer used anywhere in chapter 5. The reason why those two chapters are kept separate. I think it's beautiful. Of course, it's caused a lot of Bible skeptics and God-haters to then accuse Paul of not being the author and accuse of some kind of a silly compilation thing. But anyway, um, there's no uh, maturity status of elders. Now look at verse 6. It doesn't have to be an elder it just says not a new convert. Not a neophyte. The Greek word is where we get our English word neophyte. Not a new convert. So how long do you have to be saved before you're no longer a new convert? Okay, well, it'll be clear. <laughs> you know, it'll be clear. Because 
I think there'll be like-mindedness and agreement on the part of everybody. You know, Dan Craw was not a neophyte, so we ordained him when he was, had completed his training. Now, how long had he been saved? Not as long as others had been saved. So this is what we have to consider when we don't want to lay hands on a man too hastily. Scripture tells us don't do that. But also, we don't want to delay so long where we're calling somebody a neophyte that honestly, they're not a neophyte. Of course, they're not a neophyte. Okay? And it may be, say, that the Lord will open this door sooner rather than later depending on the circumstances. We're living in difficult days. And, and he may put a man in a, in a, in a pulpit, in a, in a church, and in, in, cause they need a flock. I mean, there's a flock that needs a shepherd. And, and, uh, we're, we're in some difficult days. So perhaps you get those battlefield promotions quicker than might otherwise happen. All right. So no spiritual gift is stipulated. Maturity status of elder is not mandated. Okay. Although, clearly, let's leave First Timothy and go over to Titus. Clearly, they are interrelated. When you look at verse 5 and you look at verse 7, obviously there's a link there. Titus chapter 1, verse 5 and verse 7. Verse 5, he says, For this reason, Paul talking to Titus now, I left you in Crete so that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. So part of Tim, uh, Titus's responsibility as he ministered, now he was in an apostolic ministry working with Paul and on Paul's behalf, but as he was traveling the, the island and he would be appointing elders. Now elders, of course, is a maturity status. But then he goes on to say, namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, then it says, for the overseer must be above reproach. You see that? We went from elders in verse 5 to overseer in verse 7. Notice also we went from elders plural in verse 5 to the overseer singular in verse 7. Okay? Details, people. (laughs) Pay attention. So many important points to be made in these things. So uh, I think appointing elders is identifying the mature believers in each lampstand and being able to make the appropriate appointments of those mature believers, meeting these ministry requirements, and appointing them as overseers. As overseers. All right. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, and we have effectively here a, a repeat of the concepts from 1 Timothy chapter 3. All right, that's the office of overseer. Not every elder is placed in that office. In fact, until we revised the Constitution in 2014, we weren't allowed a, a plurality of elders in our Constitution. The word elder didn't even appear in the Constitution. It might have been in the doctrinal statement. But it wasn't in uh, the uh, Article 5 on on. Uh, on the pastor. We had pastor, assistant pastor, and deacons is what we used to have from the 1968 Constitution onward. And it was not until 2014 that we were able to make the appropriate revisions whereby um, we we took out the the language that was frankly unbiblical. I can't find assistant pastor anywhere in the New Testament. All right. And, And replaced it with language that was biblical, such as elder, overseer. Okay. And so now we have the capacity to appoint additional overseers as needed in uh, the requir- for, as per the requirements of this ministry. 
All right. On to the deacons then. The office of deacon. The office of deacon is the diakonia of the diakonos. <coughs> that is, it is the service ministry of the servers. Table waiters. Okay. Originally, a diakonos was a table waiter, a server. And in fact, as they were created in Acts chapter 6, the apostles themselves said, it is not necessary, it is not desirable for us to neglect the Word of God in order to serve tables. And so seven men were appointed to handle the, the issues there with those widows in Acts chapter 6. And so we have a feminine noun, diakonia, that speaks of a ministry. And uh, obviously uh, there's any number of ministries available. But the office of deacon is the ministry of the diakonos deacon. Server, minister. So uh, Philippians 1.1, again, our verse that started this study, and then 1 Timothy 3, 8 and 12. You'll note, pay attention to the likewises in uh, 1 Timothy 3. Deacons likewise. Okay? Now it's deacons plural. You'll never have a single deacon, or hopefully you won't have a single deacon. Okay? It's going to be a very busy deacon. <laughs> okay? Uh, in fact, we've got it written in a minimum of three. We, can, we, we can't operate as a lampstand with less than three. Um, but it is deacons plural. Uh, likewise must be. And that likewise is, is so huge because with one little word like that, we go back to verse 1 and 2 and we realize that it, all of that comes into focus here. So it is a trustworthy statement, if any man aspires to the office of deacon, it is a fine work he desires to do. A deacon then must be. You see that? So that verbiage, that concept is built in when it says deacons likewise must be. Well, why likewise? Because it is a fine work they desire to do. And that there's an office they're being entrusted with. That's why there's a likewise. And that includes, by the way, your women deacons. Look at verse 11. Women, likewise. That's not every woman on the planet, okay? That's women deacons, likewise. And so now we can go back and say it is a trustworthy statement. If any woman aspires to the office of deacon, it is a fine work she desires to do. A deaconess then, likewise, must be. And uh, particular aspects related to women. Dignified, not malicious gossips, temperate, faithful in all things. Those are character traits that are spotlighted for your deaconesses. See, above and beyond the other characteristics there, 8 through 13 for male deacons. So, note, this office does allow for women, unlike the overseer office, and even a new convert could potentially serve. How long do you have to be uh, saved before you can serve as a deacon? Well, it does not repeat the neophyte terminology. So could a neophyte be vested in the deacon office? Say, may not be the smartest thing in the world, but does it violate Scripture if you do? Is it, uh, could it be that, that they could be a deacon a whole lot faster than they would ever be an overseer, obviously? Um, different aspects there. 
You know, uh, Gary Williams was not that old in the faith when he first became a deacon. And, uh, you know, there, there's other illustrations and other, other aspects there. We didn't know that he was going to be with the Lord in a couple years anyway, so hurry up and get, uh, get some deacon work in there. Because those who serve well as deacons, what does it say? Verse 13, they obtain for themselves a high standing and a great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. And I look forward to seeing Gary at the judgment seat of Christ and watching him presented with his full rewards. All right. Um, Romans 16.1. We taught this when we taught Romans, but there is a feminine noun for deacon, unlike feminine noun for overseer. There is a feminine noun for deacon, and it's there in Romans 16. I commend you to our sister Phoebe, who is a deaconess of the church, which is at Sancria. And uh, New American Standard brings it across as servant instead of deaconess because they're afraid of something. I, I don't know. They made, a, they made an interpretive decision within their, within their publishing uh, structure. All right? And then, of course, the women we already looked at in 1 Timothy 3.11. And throughout church history, it was not until maybe the 4th century that they started to disappear because the Roman church turned them all into nuns. All right? They started insisting on celibacy and they started insisting on, on these things and plus they were already adapting the, the Vestal Virgin thing from pagan Rome and it was just becoming horrendous. But you read the, the, the church fathers in the 2nd and 3rd century and you find all kinds of deaconesses, martyrs, uh, deaconess martyrs and, and how they were used. It was the deacons would baptize the male uh, candidates and the deaconesses would be baptizing the female candidates. And all of that spelled out, just, just read the, the church fathers. That was common, normal practice back then. See. Anyway, since we made our adjustment in uh, 2014, we've been very delighted to have deaconesses. We had one to start with, we have two now, and then we're just as pleased as, as can be. In fact, I ought to make them start doing the baptisms now for, <laughs> for the uh, female candidates. All right. And so we have the office of deacon there. Let's, uh, before we move on to the grace and peace, let's look at Acts chapter 6 and we'll see the uh, introduction of this. I call this the prototype deacon council. This is the first time that it was selected and there's so much that can be taught in this. Taught an entire series in our ministry workshop on how to write a church constitution and this chapter was a big part of it, okay? Acts chapter 6, at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number. Now, this is very early in the church, right? Saul of Tarsus is still breathing threats and fire, okay? He has not had his Damascus Road experience yet. It's still very early in the church. And the bulk of, of those are in the body of Christ are still in Jerusalem. Very few had, had gone forth yet. And uh, so at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews. And it's a legitimate complaint. Notice, their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So that's, that's what starts the whole chapter. The disciples were increasing. What does that mean? Problems. <laughs> okay. Yeah. That's my, uh, my new book on church growth. <laughs> more people, 
more problems. All right? Fine, but we have to find a biblical way to address it. Okay? Complaints. Are complaints wrong? Sometimes, but not in this case. Okay? And, uh, and so it's interesting. So there is an issue. And so the 12. Who are the 12? Matthias and his, yeah, the other 11. All right. The 12 summon the congregation of the disciples. We would call this today a business meeting. <laughs> okay? An annual business meeting of the church. They summoned the congregation of the disciples. There are issues that are dealt with with the congregation assembled. They didn't go back to a little elder meeting. They didn't go back to a, to a, a smoke-filled room and some kind of a cabal. Okay? This is done in full public view with all the, the members present. And they said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the Word of God in order to serve tables. There's your verb. Okay? And it's a literal use here because the widows were not being served. They were being neglected in the daily serving of food. And yet the very literal application is the etymology behind the term deacon, the term table waiter. Okay? I find that interesting. And so it's interesting. In verse 2, they don't say, uh, quit, you know, quit grumbling, you rebels. Shall I strike this rock for you? And you know, they weren't doing that, okay? They weren't going all Moses negative on the, on the members here. They said this is a real issue. But we're not the ones to resolve that issue. See, it's a mark of great wisdom here on the part of the twelve. See, I, I think it's the lesson that Moses learned the hard way when his father-in-law showed up and said, you're killing yourself here. You've got to delegate. You've got to delegate these issues to, to men of wisdom. And so Moses appointed 70 elders there and, and, and they handled it that way. Here are the apostles saying, we're going to appoint table waiters. And later the office will be known as deacon, okay? Because we're going to have elders, overseers, and deacons. And um, therefore, brethren, select from among you. And this, this gives the membership the possibility to make nominations in a good Baptist tradition, that would be the steering, well, the, the steering committee or the nominating committee, I guess. Um, <laughs> select from among yourselves seven men of good reputation. And look at the character traits here. Very similar to what will then be written into Scripture in 1 Timothy 3. Uh, Follow the Spirit and of wisdom whom we may put in charge of this task. Notice it's a delegated responsibility we may put in charge of this task, but it remains top-down. It remains uh, apostolic appointment to these table waiters. They're not just made deacons by the popular will of the people. That, I think, carries it beyond the, the, the true application. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And so it's a recognition that in the, in the local church that, that there are spiritual priorities and then there's earthly stuff, okay? And the pastor has to make sure that he's feeding the flock. And the table waiters are making sure that the widows are getting fed. You see the difference? And I'm not, it's, it's like the deacons here that, that are keeping me from, I'm not opening the mail, I'm not paying the electric bill, I'm not cutting the grass, I'm not fixing the, the, the broken stuff, okay? Which would stay broken if, if it was up to me. Um, because I don't fix, I break. <laughs> and, and, and put a tool in my hand, I break more. <laughs> so there's this principle 
devote ourselves. And, and keep in mind, those other men are also devoted. They're devoted to their task. Well, uh, the apostles are devoted to their task. Prayer and the ministry of the Word. And then I love verse 5. The statement found approval with the whole congregation. You want, you want biblical authority for a church vote? It's right there. Okay? The members are then free to testify to their agreement or disagreement, their approval or disapproval, their faith conviction for or against, say. And so we craft our nominations, by the way, when we have motions in business meetings. This is written into our Constitution that motions are crafted this way whereby believers can testify, yes, it is my faith conviction that, or no, it is not my faith conviction that. See, purchasing this land, building this building, hiring a pastor, firing a pastor, whatever it is, uh, it is my faith conviction that Jesus Christ as head of the church is leading Austin Bible Church to do whatever. Okay, And then the members have the blessing to stand and testify. And it's amazing to me. I mean, it shouldn't be, but it is. How many unanimous votes we had? Do you remember those years? 2008, 2009, 2010? Unanimous vote after unanimous vote after unanimous vote. The statement found approval with the whole congregation. And so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And we'll see him in the next chapter. He's the first martyr. I tell deacons, I say, welcome to the deacon council and uh, get ready. (laughs) Because Conflict ramps up. It absolutely ramps up. And Philip, we'll see him in his evangelism ministry. Prochorus, and the rest of these guys we never see again. Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon. Timon? No, we don't see him again. Not in Scripture anyway. Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. Okay? And... Um, these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, ah, oh, notice, they brought before the apostles. What was that about? And after praying, they, the apostles, laid there, the apostles' hands on them, the first seven deacons. Okay? Again, these men aren't appointed by popular will of the people. They may be nominated by the popular will of the people, but those nominees are brought where? Brought to the spiritual leadership, to the apostles. And the apostles pray, and the apostles lay on hands. Do you imagine if, if, if they brought some knucklehead that the apostles would be, oh man, why did they pick him? <laughs> you know, well, I guess we're stuck now. Here, welcome to, you know, deacon whoever. Okay, no, it's not going to happen. The apostles aren't going to be enslaved by the popular choice of, of uh, the nomination. In lots of ways. And, you know, and sometimes and it has to be that way. Absolutely has to be that way. I think uh, for all things to be done properly in an orderly manner, I think for the appropriate uh, administration of family uh, discipline, I mean, there's just things that, that, that people don't know about, and that's, they're not supposed to know about them. And, and so they, they nominate, you know, so-and-so, uh, just, you know, random name uh, Mortimer, okay? Um, there's no Mortimer's here today, right? We're good on that. You know, so they pick uh, whoever, Cletus, and they say, hey, you're going to be the new deacon. And the pastor says, uh, okay. And so we have, a, you know, there can be nominations and suggestions. 
But ultimately, the authority has to make the appointment. In this chapter, it's, it's uh, apostles. In our constitution, it's, it's me, right? It's the pastor of the church. And the deacons then get appointed. And, and there's, you know, men that aren't serving and, and won't serve and can't serve in different ways. I've had wives tell me, don't you dare make my husband a deacon. So I say, thank you for telling me that. <laughs> All right? Because your heirs together are the grace of life. And if, uh, if, if this is going to be a wedge in your marriage, then we're not going to let that happen. Right? You know, okay. Uh, and then there, I've had other, uh, it's gone the other way around too. Like, won't you make my husband a deacon? Okay, that happens. But the point being, sometimes nominations happen and the congregation has no idea that the man is thoroughly disqualified, that's fine. They don't have to know that as long as the pastor knows that. And they can work through those areas of growth and they can work through that. And a day can come when he is qualified and then, beautiful. Grace works and the man serves as a deacon and on we go. And everyone else is just none the wiser. All right. So... um, that's the application there. So uh, after praying, verse 6, they laid their hands on them and the word of God kept on spreading and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in uh, Jerusalem. And notice, a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. That is a verse that gets overlooked a lot, but uh, I think it's significant for later developments in the book of Acts and also for the book of Hebrews. Uh, I think the significant number of priests that came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ here is, uh, is important. All right, so that's the office of deacon. Beyond that, we've got to talk about grace and peace. Grace and peace, charis and irene. I tell you, even if you, I, I, I said there's 20, I think there's more than that, 50 maybe. Even if you never want to take a Greek class in your entire life, I think every church age believer ought to have a list of 20, a list of 30, that you just know automatic, just off the top of your head. You know about agape, you know about phileo, you know about charis, you know about irene. Charis and irene, grace and peace are common opening benedictions. In fact, every one of Paul's epistles and some others, Peter and John, make use of the grace and peace benediction. What is the actual, um, what is the actual purpose of a benediction? Why do, why do we say it? Why do they say it? Is it a prayer? Is it a command? What is it? So charis and irene, grace and peace. Sometimes it's may, may they be given, may they be multiplied, may they be bestowed. There's different ways to express it. But in one form or fashion or another, it's charis and irene that come from God and they come to you because somebody is calling for it or asking for it or requesting it or desiring it. it is a, you can think of it as a wish prayer in, uh, in that sense, or as a benediction. All right, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, all right, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a prayer request. It is calling upon God and His faithfulness to keep grace and peace in the forefront of your thinking. And you'd be surprised. I, I think it's repeated again and again and again, because it needs to be repeated again and again and again. I think that when believers lose their focus, those are the first two things they're going to lose. 
They're going to lose the mindset of grace. They're going to lose the, the attitude of peace. And with, with that out of their thinking, it's just a train wreck from going you know, from there on into darker realms of carnality beyond that. So whether it's Romans 1.7, that's the longest of Paul's opening benedictions. 1 Corinthians 1.3, a three-verse benediction. 2 Corinthians 1.2, Galatians 1.3, Ephesians 1.2, Philippians 1.2, Colossians 1.2. Uh, you know, most of, his, most of Paul's writings, if you ever just create a list of all Paul's benedictions, read through them. They are, they're similar to one another. 1 Thessalonians, he was in a big hurry. <laughs> Actually, I think they versified it wrong. I, th- I think that they just shoved it all into a single verse. 1 Thessalonians 1.1, 1, 1. 2 Thessalonians 1.2, 1, 1 Timothy 1.2, 1, 2 Timothy 1.2. In those, by the way, we have the addition of mercy. When he's writing to Timothy, it's grace, mercy, and peace. Titus 1.4, Philemon 3, 1 Peter 1.2. Peter uses it. You know, I wonder if he was ripping off Paul at that point. He read Paul's writings. Got confused by some of it. Okay. But he makes use of it. 1 Peter 1, 2, 2 Peter 1, 2, 2 John 3, and Revelation 1, 4. While grace alone is the most common closing benediction. And then you can uh, read through the closing benedictions. And uh, uh, peace does not get mentioned in those the way that grace does. Grace by itself gets mentioned in the closing benedictions. Why? I don't know. <laughs> Someday I'll figure that out, or someone will teach me. But it's grace and uh, peace early, and then it's grace at the end. At least that's the pattern. Not only Pauline's pattern, but also in, at the close of, of Scripture, Revelation twenty two twenty one, The Apostle John closes Revelation with grace in Revelation 22, 21, okay? And so these, uh, these blessings then being wished. Now, we're, we're human, right? You notice that? We don't just make something happen by saying so. God says, let there be light, and what? There's light, that's right. By the, the declaration of His will, then reality conforms. We can't do that. I can say grace be unto you. I can't make it happen. I'm not the source of it. I'm not causative. None of us are. But we can pray to the God who is the God of all grace, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, the God of peace. And we can, even without, a, a, even without the form of a request, even in the form of a statement or a blessing, a benediction, we are to pronounce a blessing one upon another. And we do so, and God honors that. God honors that. To me, it's a beautiful thing. All right. So when we pronounce a blessing, does it happen because we said so? Or because God is pleased to honor us, to work through us as His tools? He is the God of... And so, I'm going to get to this next slide, but before we do that, let's... 2 Corinthians 1. You remember when we taught this in 2 Corinthians 1? Oh, it went that long ago. Come on. <laughs> All right, 2 Corinthians 1. All right, through the Bible was in 2002. 1 um, Corinthians started in 2003 and went six years. And then 2 Corinthians was in 2009, 
right? To just 2015, not that long ago. But chapter 1 was early. Okay. Um, now, he's the God of... So here's grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Now, here's Paul pronouncing a blessing upon God. Does that make God any more blessed? How does this work? How does it work when we bless, when we glorify, when we magnify? How does this work? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. How does he do that? How does he do that? Does God just, you know, imbue a power? Is there a glow? Does he move his hand and then there's some kind of a radiation glow of comfort that hits us? Or does he send a person? Is there a brother in Christ, a sister in Christ? Is there a tool in his hand that comes alongside the comfort? And we see that's the context here. And he does this in all our afflictions so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So we become the recipients of his comfort. We then come alongside somebody else the next day and we get to be the conduits of his comfort the day after that. You see how that works? And so this is how God operates. And so this is how it works in a benediction. Grace be unto you in peace. I just say it. Does that mean that there's a glow of grace in the air? Or in saying it, am I reminding you and myself that we're saved by grace, we're to walk by grace? And I'm not just saying it to you, but I'm going to deal with you graciously. I'm going to be, grace, I'm going to be gracious in my dealings with you and i want you to be gracious in your dealings with me and one another and we're going to see the grace multiplied and we're going to see the peace multiplied because we're keeping this in the in the forefront of our thinking this this becomes the attitudinal tie that binds us together here in the church age all right when we come back wednesday we're going to see some principles here of both grace and peace the grace of god is what saves us sustains us and ultimately brings us into his glory you know we're going to die in grace by the grace of god we get to go to heaven the grace of god is what sustains us and i I hope i please i hope that every verse we look at on wednesday is a verse you've seen before (laughs) it's a verse you know very well if if any of those come to you as a newsflash or some kind of a shock then We'll talk about that too, but we'll, we'll realize there's some remedial training that has to happen here. Who doesn't know Romans three twenty three and 24? Who doesn't know Ephesians 2, right? But maybe there's some details in verse 5 that connect to verse 8 maybe you haven't seen before. Um, Romans 5, 2, how about the sustaining of grace? You know, grace didn't end the day we got saved. How pathetic would that be? If grace saves you and then you never see any more grace again, well, hello, I was saved as a four-year-old, and, and I'm very thankful there's been a whole lot of grace in the, in the years since then, okay? Day by day, moment by moment, all that I am, all that I do, Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God, I do what I do. That's why you have to constantly be repeating it to one another, grace be unto you, and I want to be gracious towards you. And so... Um, 
Romans 5, 2, we stand in this grace. We stand in this powerful estate. 1 Corinthians 15, 10, 2 Corinthians 9, 8, 2 Corinthians 12, 9. The grace is abundant. It motivates our giving. It motivates our service. It motivates all that we do. Ultimately, it brings us into glory. And I think there's an aspect of verse 7 um, within the overall concept of, of Ephesians 2, uh, five, seven, and eight that speaks to glory more so than time. First Peter one thirteen, first Peter five ten. And then finally, grace rejects any work or merit. If you want to be a legalist, you can't do it in grace. <laughs> okay? The law is good if one uses it lawfully. And grace is good if you use it graciously. All right, so grace rejects any works or merit. Romans 4, 4 and 16, Romans eleven six. The minute you start going to works, the moment you start going to what you've earned and deserved, the moment you start pouting in your self-pity party about, well, I don't deserve this, you've, you've already left the realms of grace, okay? So quit pitching a fit, you know? You want to know what you've earned and deserved? Yeah, I should be in the lake of fire. So why am I upset about this, this test or whatever it is I'm going through right now? Let's go back to grace. Let's stop the, the, the boo-hoo of what I think I've, I've earned or deserved, what I think I'm better than. I, I shouldn't have to go through this. Why do I have to go through this? Okay? Well, why do I think I'm better than that? Why do I think I shouldn't go through that? Am I somehow exempt from suffering? I, my Savior wasn't exempt. Who do I think I am? If He suffered, I'm supposed to suffer. Why do I think I rate? And He, he was, I mean, if anyone rates, it's Him, right? He'd be the one entitled to not, not go to a cross, but He did go to the cross. So we'll uh, give you those points on grace, then we'll give you some points on peace, why we have peace, why it's not the world's definition of peace. Oh my. You know, my peace I give you not as the world gives, do I give unto you? Because this world has a fraud they call peace. And, and so many Christians are sold out for it. It's just heartbreaking. You ever think about that? You notice there's no such thing as a counterfeit grace Satan can't counterfeit grace. All they can do is deny it and put people under legalism. But peace he counterfeits. And too many Christians, I think, fall for that. And so we want to be equipped on both, both points. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for your grace and your peace. May they be multiplied, Father, as we receive Christ. So we're going to walk in him. That's by grace through faith. Thank you, Father. This is all day, every day, should we choose to embrace it. Father, your grace is sufficient. And uh, we, we need to learn these lessons. And we do learn these lessons. We learn these lessons when we're weak. We learn these lessons when um, you, you spotlight for us how utterly dependent we are on you. And, uh, and I thank you for that kind of testing. So uh, make this message come alive. Make it real in our thinking. Bless us, Father, in our applications. I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.